By listening to the Conscious Fertility Podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician or healthcare provider for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Welcome to Conscious Fertility, the show that listens to all of your fertility questions so that you can move from fear and suffering to peace of mind and joy. My name is Lauren Brown. I'm a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine and a clinical hypnotherapist. I'm on a mission to explore all the paths to peak fertility and joyful living. It's time to learn how to be and receive so that you can create life on purpose. Today on the Conscious Fertility Podcast, I have my colleague Lonnie Jarrett, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because in the present, I'm very interested in consciousness. However, when I started my practice back in 2000, I was very much uh, into the physical, but Lonnie was into this kind of consciousness or stuff that I kind of dismissed quite a bit actually back in that day. And here we are meeting to, on our Conscious Fertility Podcast to talk about consciousness because he, to me, was one of the earlier teachers and practitioners that was really tapping into the spiritual side of Chinese medicine. A little background about Lonnie, he's been practicing Chinese medicine in Stockbridge, Massachusetts since 1986. He's a founding board member of the Acupuncture Society of Massachusetts and a fellow of the National Academy of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine. He is the author of several books. The first one that I remember was Nourishing Destiny, The Inner Tradition of Chinese Medicine, followed by The Clinical Practice of Chinese Medicine, and his most recent text is Deepening Perspectives on Chinese Medicine. He holds a master's degree in neurobiology, and he's a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. And he recently was featured in the text, The Great Work of Your Life, A Guide for the Journey to Your True Calling um, by the best-selling author Stephen Cope. So, you know, this is kind of why I wanted to talk to you, Lonnie, because women and men share that this is their calling to have a, another child to grow a family within. I find that we got IVF, we got herbals, we're doing acupuncture, supplements, diet, and I've always found, or I think, the missing link is on this spiritual, even into the subconscious side, that we don't maybe pay enough attention to that. And this is why I wanted to sit down with you and talk about consciousness and its role in healing and where it shows up in Chinese medicine. Well, I'm uh, yeah, I, I'm glad to do it. I mean, I'm happy to answer any questions. I've, I never really, you know, when I went through school, when I learned Chinese medicine, which I started studying, well, I actually wrote my college entrance essay on it in 1975. Okay. And you know, there were no resources. And when I went through school, even 84 to 86, there were only a few books. In English? In English, written on China. Well, then the ones in Chinese, the classical texts hadn't been translated, and they wouldn't have even been well understood by most of the people practicing Chinese medicine in China. They wouldn't have had the basis to read the classical language under Mao and because there's a sh there was a shift, right? Chinese medicine, how it was how it was trained and often practiced now, compared to the sages, the classical. I often hear that the spirituality was taken out of the medicine. Can you comment on that? Well, sure. I mean, it, it's actually a complex question. But if if we if we read the classical texts, we can see the foundation for a profound metasystemic theory in it, where they were rational medical texts. And they tied human, the health of human beings into social health and into the health of the biosphere and our, ultimately our connection to the cosmos. And of course, this was in the Han Dynasty, you know, 500 to 300 BC, these great texts were written. And by the 1800s, Chinese medicine sort of fell out of favor in China as China had to confront a country that was deeply embedded in superstition and myth and bring China into the modern age. So, of course, there was the communist revolution. And in the late 40s, Mao declared that Chinese medicine was a vast treasure house that was neglected and had to be restored according to the principles of dialectical materialism. So dialectical materialism is communism, and the dialectic, the conversation is we're only going to talk about what's physically real. 
And that's kind of, you know, conventional medicine is, is a materialistic medicine, right? If we, if we can't measure it, we yes. don't Well, it. under the influence of Descartes, I, I think there, with the emergence of perspectivalism in 1450 with Leonardo da Vinci, and then the flowering of that in 1650 with I think, therefore I am. And that materialism led to an industrial revolution really in, in the West and a technological revolution in the West. And the Chinese were falling behind and, and Mao had the task, took on the task of bringing China into the 20th century and with that threw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and just there are three dimensions to our experience, which is the gross, which is the physical. The gross realm, our gross experience is the body and our apparent separateness from the biosphere and the apparent separateness of everything that has a name. So the gross realm is the physical body and the parts of the nervous system that reflect to us our independent existence as a separate ego. And then there's the subtle realm, which has, which is the psyche, which we experience and the soul is even more subtle, which we experience in dreams. And that is a world of metaphor, a world of symbolism, where so out here a cup is a cup, but in a dream, a cup or anything we see is the tip of an iceberg with deep, deep roots and lots of potential meaning condensing on it. And then beyond our dream time and sleep and dreaming, we have the very subtle realm, which is spirit, which is just clear white light, which is deepest dreamless sleep. So we have the gross, the subtle, and the very subtle dimensions of experience. And the Maoists eliminated the subtle and the very subtle dimensions and really just turned Chinese medicine into thermodynamics. And where we're at today, does Chinese medicine have a place where medicine and spirituality can merge. And I ask this question because of the multiple guests that we've had on the Conscious Fertility podcast that are just scientists, teachers of consciousness. We've had a few uh, practitioners of Chinese medicine, but these are just quantum physicists or consciousness uh, teachers. They've shared kind of what you said about this illusion of separateness, right? Yes. And that we're connected to something greater. So do you subscribe to that from your own personal experience and through Chinese medicine that there's more to life than us and that it is an illusion that we're separate? And then really, how do we bring this down to the material world? Because it sounds great to talk about this over coffee and philosophize about this. But when somebody is struggling and suffering, mental, emotional, physically, is there a way to tap into this to have a change on the material level? Well, sure. I mean... I mean, there's only ever one thing happening in the full extent of the universe. So from a, a Western linear, and I guess we could say patriarchal perspective, things are related to each other that happened at different times. So in the West, we consider things related when an effect follows a cause. So cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. So when things happen in proximity to each other, but at different times, we consider them related. And if things happen at the same time, we call it a coincidence. Mm -hmm. And a coincidence is dismissing the relationship between things. But from the perspective of all time existing in one moment, the synthetic point of view, which in the West... Carl Jung championed as the idea of synchronicity, which he got by reading the I Ching okay. and, and, and reading the, the Taoist textbooks and the Chinese textbooks. If from that point of view, we consider everything related that emerges together at the same time. So there's something called dependent origination. And that is that everything that exists in a moment depends on everything else in that moment for its existence. And nothing has an independent existence. So when, when people are suffering, we can make a distinction regarding suffering. So there's physical suffering in proximity to a life-threatening illness, or once been in a car crash, or shot by a gun, or broke one's leg skiing, or has an infection of a bacteria or a virus that is threatening one's life. And that 
is very much primarily focused in the gross realm, and it's most expediently dealt with in an emergency room. And that's what Western medicine's very good for is when, when life is threatened. But most of us are not in that position regularly. And most human suffering that occurs in the interior dimension of the self, psychologically, emotionally, in terms of distortions in the soul, have to do actually primarily with living inside an inherently limited context that comes from having all of our identification and all of our experience focused on the illusion of being separate. And from the perspective of Chinese medicine, separation is pain. And there are seven stars in the Big Dipper, which are seven sources of light in heaven. The Big Dipper is conceived of as the spoon that stirs us through destiny. And at the moment of conception, confers a life curriculum a destiny upon each individual. So there are seven sources of light in heaven, seven holes in the head to receive that light, and then seven internal pathogens and seven external pathogens to obscure that light. And the human body is a flawed vehicle. It's temporary. It's going to break down and it's fleeting, but consciousness is eternal. And it's really the illusion of being a separate self, the illusion of being separate that causes pain. And we can understand that Chinese medicine addresses the interpenetration of yin and yang. All it can diagnose is how yin and yang comes apart. All Chinese medicine diagnoses is separation, and all it can do is promote communication. And promoting communication, when we talk about promoting the flow of qi, the flow of qi is just a metaphor for ending separation by ceasing repression. And when you say ceasing repression, in the, the lingo that we use in our practice, well, is that what we'd be referring to as qi stagnation? Well, qi stagnation, blood stagnation, damp stagnation, heat stagnation, wind stagnation, and the can all have both external and internal origins. And the external origins are the biosphere and culture, mm -hmm. society. Because human beings live in two environments. We live in a natural environment, you know, with trees and lakes and river and seasonal change and a daily light cycle. But we also live in an environment of rules, roles, laws, and regulations that we have created as projections of our own internal relationships to ourselves. So I want to talk a little bit more about this, and I want to talk about the repression as well, the stagnation. So the external environment, internal environment, many of the guests, and I subscribe to this, is your external environment is a reflection of your internal environment. And we often, if we're asleep, if we're not conscious, we project it out as well. Right, So you can see people where they have their shadow to work, and um, if they are conscious, they don't take it personally, and they know it's inside of them, and it's meant to for them to transform. I'll use these words very loosely. For those that are not awake, they'll often project it out, and we get the Putins and stuff where if I just kill these people, or if I just take over this, I will feel better, and everybody else will, be, will feel better. So they've shared that. It's about accountability and responsibility. It's not about self-blame or blame at all. It's about accountability and responsibility of realizing if I've seen something happening outside of me and I don't like it, it is feedback to look inside. And I just wanted you to touch on that because you talked a little bit about yeah. we project things out. And on the repression side, I'm going to just two-part question for you because, Lonnie, I wish we had hours with you, but we're going to see how much I can pull from you to share with our audience. Okay. That stagnation, that repression... The way I've been understanding it is that when we have resistance, like you said, we have society that creates root rules and we develop repression, it impedes the receptivity and flow in life. And things just, we suffer, things don't feel good and maybe things don't even manifest. We don't notice these synchronicities. And when this resistance can be lowered, we start to experience receptivity and flow and start to notice these synchronicities. Um, so that's kind of been my observation. And with patients using Chinese medicine, using mind-body work, you use it as this form of communication. How can we help the body with this um, perceived separateness and find that communication where I'm understanding that receptivity and flow come back because the resistance has been lowered? So 
Can you just elaborate a bit about this projection out? And can we tie it in a bit with the health of the body or like this desire? Because when it comes to fertility, usually there's this incredible desperation desire. I must have this baby. I need to have this baby, which that attachment to that form and outcome, I believe creates resistance. And then there is a place where people can arrive at where they want the baby but they're not to that attached. So there's not a desperation anymore. They'd be disappointed. So they haven't stopped the desire, but it's not this deep, desperate need. And one blocks resistance and one lowers resistance. So I want you to tie it into our population <laughs> that often listens, if you can. You said, you, you said a lot, like 12 things here. I'll address a few, and then if I've missed any, you can tell me. So the first thing you alluded to is this notion that when we see things outside of us that disturb us, we need to look inside. And that's partially true. It's been, we can sum that up as paraphrasing Gandhi as we need to be the change mm. that we want to see in the world. And that is true. And on the other hand, there is a, a medical imperative to change laws, rules, and regulations and nobody's is going to be healthy living in a fascist country. So to have adapted to life in Germany in 1943 and been healthy in that context would have been to have been very sick. So yes, on the one hand, you know, so we consider just yin and yang. Yes, on the one hand, we need to be the change we want to see in the world. And on the other hand, social justice and establishing systems and professions that and rules and rules and regulations that allow all human beings to live a life of dignity free from fear, honoring their inherent dignity is also just as important. So really it's a we need to change the interior, we need to change the exterior. When it comes to fertility and getting pregnant, now I do a quite a class on this, like a three, four hour class on this. So this is just a very quick synopsis. But one, I have found the greatest imperative is to get the couple to just relax. So this is what you were pointing to in terms of letting go of attachment. And we have a sort of epidemic these days because culture has changed and women can now have careers, and rightfully so, and are not just homemakers and not just valued for, you know, sex and service, a new value for women since really the end of the 1800s and continually being realized in certain cultures around the world is the idea that women can have agency. And as women have gained agency, they've put off child rearing. And then we see this sort of epidemic in Chinese medicine of 35 to 45-year-old women who wake up on a Tuesday evening and all of a sudden hear their biological clock as the loudest voice in their head and all of a sudden decide that they want to, they need to, they absolutely must have a child, all the way to the conclusion that if they don't have a child, their life will have no meaning. And this leads, this is a very, very deep biologically conditioned um, structure and a very deep culturally reinforced structure that has everything to do with the sense of a separate self and ego identification. And it, it just is a very, very heavy trip and heavy context to create for the incarnation of a soul that you are what gives my life meaning. So, I mean, I have two children and I, I raised a foster child. And of course, I love them profoundly, and they do bring a lot of meaning to life, but they didn't provide my life with meaning. My life wasn't empty before I had them, and my, my life isn't empty when they've moved out of the house. And in terms of actual agency, as I was discussing before, and as my, the title of my book, Nourishing Destiny, points to, is that we have a life curriculum and we have a soul and it's our responsibility to rectify that soul for the, for the sake of seeing through the independent self and working toward the true, the good, the beautiful for the sake of the whole. And having children can certainly fit into that 
And I just get concerned when men and women have such profound attachment that literally they can't focus on anything else. And the very worth of their existence becomes called into question that if they don't get the outcome they want, their life is sort of devoid of meaning and there's sort of a cynicism and a bitterness. And I I think you did point to this. Yeah, well, I'm going to clarify this because I think once anybody attaches to anything, money, career, spouse, and they think that's what's going to give them meaning then you run into challenges and struggle and suffering if you're well not. if that's what is going to give them ultimate meaning yes ultimate meaning because, i mean it's fine of course our kids give us meaning and if playing guitar gives me meaning you know for other people sailboating and you know that's fine but when it comes down to this notion of ultimate meaning and without doing this my life is empty and i've seen this a hundred times this kind of syndrome which happens very significantly in mid-30s to mid-40-year-old women who haven't had children. And then all of a sudden, this biological impulse takes over and the clock starts ticking, their biological clock starts ticking very, very loudly. And it sort of obscures, it inhibits the flow of qi and actually makes the whole process more difficult. And one of the main things I focus on initially is getting the people to really relax. So that's the part, because you said that twice, I'll share that when I hear that, I can I can empathize and feel mm-hmm. the women listening and how that's hurting their heart because the last thing what they want to hear is just relax because they've heard it before. And to be honest, if they could just relax, they would. <laughs> but that's well, the problem. Well, and people can and they don't. Well, th- we need tools, right? We need tools and practices um, yes, because well, you can have the intention, I want to relax, and yet there is a part of them that is this biological need. And for me and for you, we can reproduce much older in life. And so we, I can sit here and, and relax. You know, that's getting to be less true though, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's all yin and yang is relative compared to females, we yeah. can reproduce much later in life. And yes, there is research showing that there's maybe health issues. Yeah, I think children. I just heard Robert De Niro's having another baby. Yeah, 70 something, right? <laughs> Mick Jagger will be going for the next 200 years. Yeah. So, because I want to, you know, for the listeners, you know, when they hear yes. just relax, doesn't serve them, in my opinion. Like well, this, I, I don't tell people to just relax. I, I'm telling you that I think having them relax is one of the most significant things. But I don't just look at them and say, just relax. We we focus very deeply on all the things they have to be grateful for, their love for their partner, if they're doing this with a partner. And another reason that I think we can tell people to relax is I have found in general fertility treatment to go rather well and be rather easy in the context of Chinese medicine, which is to say in my 38-year career, there are only three women who didn't get pregnant that I worked with and a hundred or more who did. And it was just, you know, essentially the woman's body has evolved over a billion years to perform this function. And very often, as soon as we conify a bit of blood and get the chi moving and resolve a little damp, it turns out that even long-standing infertility can change very, very quickly. Yeah, and so, so I've had I've had very, very good luck treating it. So I'm usually optimistic. And your approach, um, you're using acupuncture, you're using herbal medicine as well in your practice or yes. just acupuncture? Well, no, acupuncture and herbs and dietary advice and Anything that would fall under the auspices of lifestyle counseling in terms of exercise, sleep regimen, what time of day to eat, eat what kind of foods to eat, what kind of foods to avoid. And in general, then also talking like talking on a very deep level. And I, I mean, literally, I mean, I've had women come in and the most important thing to them was having a child. And by the end of a conversation, it got to they completely saw through their motive and said, you know, I think you're right. I really don't want one. And that happened in 45 minute, a 45 minute conversation. And other, other people, we just work. And usually I ask people to abstain from trying to get pregnant 
for a minimum of three months because there's often a period of rectification of physiological processes like moving damp, moving blood stagnation very often, which would be contraindicated to getting pregnant while you were giving the kind of herbs that do it. So I'll often ask people to wait three months, sometimes six months, till I can see a result in the tongue and in the pulses that and that leads me to suspect, okay, I think the conditions are right now. We also want to see changes around their ex- the woman's experience relative to her period, for instance. As in lack of premenstrual symptoms, painful periods, change in blood quality and color, that you're looking for that shift? All those things. Lack, the significant is lack of tenderness in the breasts, lack of clotting, the blood being you know bright and not clotted, dark brown or purple, lack of emotional upset and lack of physical pain, all of these things you mentioned. Yeah. And for our listeners, because there's a, in Chinese medicine, what we call a, a healthy cycle and an unhealthy cycle. And in, in the West, we hear your cycle's normal, but normal doesn't mean healthy. It just means a lot of people have this. <laughs> and a lot of what, what we consider normal, PMS, clots, pain with your period, having to take off a few days of work is maybe considered normal, but it's definitely not considered healthy according to Chinese medicine. So Lonnie was sharing what a healthy cycle would be described. As. Yeah. If I had pe- women rate their discomfort on a scale of one to 10, nothing more than a two is acceptable to me. So and anything more than a two, which would mean to me, you know, minimal for an hour or something like that. But really there should be no significant emotional, psychological, or physical discomfort and the blood should be healthy and the period should be regular somewhere around 20 every 26 to 30 days i mean 28 is ideal but there's a little bit of latitude but certainly not i'm not happy if it's less than 26 or more than 30. okay i wanted to go back to something you mentioned about the curriculum so um, you subscribe to this idea that we come in with a curriculum life here we're here to learn stuff can you elaborate on that and then how does trying to grow your family fit into your curriculum possibly well having a family isn't in everybody's curriculum we can acknowledge that and when i'm talking about so i would not necessarily argue or make any strong case for the idea of reincarnation i just don't know i've had some experience in my life that through contemplation and deep meditations, like I've meditated a lot and sometimes like 12 hours, like sitting for 12 hours, or I've done 24 hours straight, three hours on, 15 minutes off and go or 10 days straight, 14 hours a day, something like this. And on deep contemplation or arriving at transcendent states in other ways, I've had enough experience that lead me to believe that some of what, for instance, the Tibetans say about reincarnation is true. But whether reincarnation is true or not, I do believe, it is my experience, and I do believe that human beings come in with a condition. And any parent who's had more than two kids, more than one child knows this is true, knows that their child came in. I would condition have a- like a personality? Like Yes, with tendencies right there the second you meet them. I, I met a friend, a good friend's parents a few weeks ago, and I said to them, you know, you must have done something right because she just is so joyous and has so much love. And they both looked at me simultaneously and said, that's who she was the moment we met her. Kids have conditions. So when I'm talking about the soul, when, when we talk about genetics in Western science and medicine. We're talking about physical transmission from ancestry. And that's the gross realm. And it's true. And it's not wrong. But I think there's also a subtle transmission. And I think we come in with the condition. And that condition is born by a very a subtle dimension of ourselves, which we can call the soul. And it is the job of each of us in our lives to rectify the soul. I would understand the soul to be the most subtle dimension of us, closest to the absolute that has a personal dimension to it. And its job is to convey light, to transmit and to receive light in the form of the true, the good, the beautiful, in the form of love, 
And we come in with culture, we come in with all kinds of conditions, and then those conditions are activated and triggered by culture. Can you define a bit what you mean by conditions? I keep thinking when you're saying conditions, you're talking about like literally physical conditions, but I don't think that's what you're well, I, talking I, about. Well, I that. think it must be reflected in the physical template, but I'm talking about life lessons that need to be learned. If we consider the soul as a mirror that reflects light, I'm talking about distortions in the mirror. And it's up to us to see. We come in with conditions from our people. I mean, for instance, when I was born in 1958, which was only 13 years after the end of the Second World War, and being Jewish, I came into a culture, into my family of people who were profoundly traumatized by what happened. And and that trauma wasn't just something that they had lived to 13 years before. It goes back to thousands and thousands of years. And I think we, we all come in with possibly conditions and from experience in past lives, possibly, but certainly genetically transmitted conditions from our people and our people's experience, whoever our people happen to be. And that it's up to us to become free, to rectify distortions, to rectify distortions. From a psychoanalytic point of view, you know, Freud basically dealt with what happened between the moment of first breath and basically toilet training <laughs> as the the temp maybe up till the age of six as the template for who we were in life. And I just think that I don't think conception is a neutral event. I think we come in with issues and that it's up to us to take these on. And and of course, we all have early life experiences that when our mind is developing, as we gain language in the face of our early life experience, as a two, a three, a four, a five, a six, a 10, a 12, a 16-year-old, an 18-year-old, we draw conclusions about the meaning of our experience with a partially formed mind. And most people, if they live to be 100, the outcome of their life is dictated by conclusions they drew about who they were and how life is and the meaning of existence when they were six. You know, I think it's um, Dan Siegel. I heard it from Dan Siegel. I don't know if he is the originator that the mm -hmm. environment creates your mind and then your mind creates your environment. And he's saying up until that age of six or 12, you're being imprinted on by your environment and that imprints on your subconscious, and now you have tinted lenses, and then you start to experience the world. Now the mind creates the environment based on your experience. It sounds like that's what you're you're sharing that same. Yes, I would make. I would say there's more than just the environment creating your mind because I am saying that we come in with something. And they've they add, and that's his quote. But he talks about that from the as you call it, the gross, the physical that yes. our trauma is transgenerational and it tags the DNA they now know. So that comes in with you as well. And now you're talking about more on the spiritual side that we come in with a curriculum with conditions, possibly could be past lives. Regardless, we already come in at the time of conception, we have history. It sounds like you're yes. sharing. Yes. a momentum. Yeah. And so when it comes to, again, in our, for our podcast, fertility, Mm -hmm. Some people can interpret this and, and think they're being punished or blamed, but from the people, from my experience and talking to other experts uh, in consciousness, there's no real room for blame. And everything that's happening is like a wake-up call, an opportunity for you to integrate and heal. Do you subscribe to that idea? Well, sure. I mean, one of, one of the main things in terms of falling under the auspices of helping a couple or particularly the woman to relax, is that there is the human mind is a meaning-making apparatus. And when it doesn't know, it makes stuff up. And that's where all the traditions came from. And one of the main ways in helping a woman get perspective is that so many that I've that I have worked with have a profound they draw this conclusion and this profound certainty that the fact that they're not getting pregnant is some kind of punishment or means something about them. They blame themselves and they feel fundamentally flawed. You know, there's the, always the opportunity when life happens, we give it meaning, right? Everything is neutral and then we give it meaning through the lens of our subconscious. So mm -hmm. it's understandable that if you're not getting pregnant, 
some of the experiences, my body's failing me or, or I am a failure, those profound statements. I also see those that are come in and uh, they have this desire to have a child and, and they're looking for, and w- what our listeners are looking for is, are there tools, are there methods, are there ways? Like when you say to relax, I see this as, can we lower the resistance? Can, w- can we find ways to be present? Can we find ways to not be at the effect of what's happening? So here, a diagnosis of infertility and how can I support, how can I use my soul, how can I use my, my mind to support my body in finding that peace, in lowering that resistance, which, which I think you're calling for it to relax, to be more receptive and allowing. Yes. So to make an analogy, I've been involved in spiritual communities. I was involved in spiritual communities for 27 years and for much longer than that and right up till now, work with people in communities. And there are many people who take on a celibate practice for the sole reason that they can do the work necessary so that on the other side of the celibate practice, they can find a, a partner. I don't and know that. So the entire <laughs> time, <laughs> so the entire time they're celibate, it's a profound attachment to the opposite outcome from celibacy. Got, okay, now I understand what. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So when you say how can people relax? Well, I'm going to go back to what I said before, which is through a fundamental discovery of the inherent dignity of their incarnation and who and what they are, regardless of the outcome of the fertility treatments. A spiritual journey. And that's what I see. To me, that is a, this is a spiritual journey. And this is, uh, I think one of my earlier questions is, is there a role or is there a place where medicine and spirituality can merge? Well, medicine and spirituality, we, we only ask that question I mean, the question itself is predicated on the assumption that they'd be in any way separate. And so the medicine I teach is integral medicine. And the term integral was coined by the Indian sage Sri Aurobindo early in the last century, who founded integral yoga. And integral yoga for him meant a practice that left no significant part of the self behind. And Integral medicine, which is just an emergent medicine, is a medicine that leaves no part of this, no significant part of the self behind. It acknowledges all dimensions of the self, the body, the psyche, the soul, emptiness, luminosity, the authentic self, the ego, the superego, the witness. These are all dimensions of the self that have been identified. And there just is no separation between mind, body, soul, and spirit. All medicine is always addressing all of them, but the issue is that the practitioner may not be awake to those dimensions in themselves. And if a practitioner is not awake to the subtle and very subtle and very, very subtle dimensions of the self, they're not going to be able to guide the patient in that way. Thank you for that little piece there, that last little piece. And so it sounds like there is a, it's already all happening, this spiritual, emotional, and physical. Well, it's just one thing. They're just increasingly subtle dimensions of whatever phenomenon's occurring. And you talked earlier about like the light, the the dipper, and uh, the seven yeah. orifices in the head. More and more I'm reading about, like it, it sounded almost like naive that it's all about light and love. And more and more on this journey, there's this shadow side where it feels dark, dense, heavy energy. If There's a lot of fear and it's not a good feeling energy. And, um, and I'm just curious because of your own contemplative practice, spirituality practice, is it all love and light? Or what about the, those that come across what feels like shadow or dark energy? How do you, well, how do you understand Carl, that? Because fertility, if, I just want to add, because I think a lot of the people I see that are going through for their fertility journey, they come into what sometimes feels like that shadow work as well. Well, sure. So Carl Jung said that the tree that would grow to heaven has to send its roots to hell. Okay. But it's all for the sake of liberation of light. I mean, it, it is all about love. If having a child and bringing a child into the world isn't about love, then I have no idea what it could be meaningfully about. 
it's interesting because you have children, I have children, and you already love your child before they're born. Isn't that like, I never knew I would love my partner before I met my partner, right? But when people are pregnant or when they even think about it, there's a sense of they already love it. And, uh, and you talk about it's all about love. That's one thing I've always been so fascinated and curious about. And I'm just, if you have a comment on that, that, and to me it's because sure. like, Go ahead. Let's let's hear your thoughts. Oh, on this. I mean, I think that's probably true for most women. My experience was right up to the time my first child was born. I had no idea how I was going to find the time to be a dad, mm-hmm. and it was abstract to me. And the sec, my wife had a C-section after thirty-six hours of labor, and I was standing there right next to her while they were doing the surgery, and they lifted this baby out. And said, congr- and handed her to me and said, congratulations, Mr. Jarrett, you have a beautiful, healthy baby daughter. And I looked in her eyes and that was it. And I experienced just no separation whatsoever. Just no separation. Like usually with people, there are layers. And even if you feel a connection, there's still at times of building trust and everything. But with, with my children, it, it was the time in my life where I, I looked and there was just no separation at all. So in terms of shadow, we do have dark motives. And I, I think in relationship to having a child, one of the dark motives is I need a child to give my life meaning. Because that is an inherently selfish motive. And what the problem's going to be, Lorne, is if you have a child to give your life primary meaning, then every second the rest of that child's life, when they do get here, you're going to be relying on that child to give your life meaning, which sort of denies their agency and their their soul's independent existence on a trajectory and I think as parents, I mean, at least I've, I came to a point long ago of realizing I'm responsible for these kids and I love them, but they're not mine. You know, it's interesting. I want to add to that is it became very early on in my life that it's my responsibility and I, I will love my children, but they don't need to love me. It's a one-way street. And what you're sharing here is about if you need, when I do the conscious work, um, I always ask, why do you want this child? And not at a very superficial level. It's more about their internal working. And the only time I think there is a red flag, and again, it's not a judgment, it's just a red flag, is I need this child because I need something to love me. That is too much pressure to put on an infant. That's, and, I'm, and lo- I'm, that's more or less what I'm pointing yeah, to. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of us, a lot of us that have our own issues, our conditions, is because we were raised by behaviorists or we didn't get that attachment needs because they were looking for us to give them meaning. And if we didn't behave a certain way, they weren't getting their meaning met. And so we have our, we have our issues because of that. And that's why I like the conscious work for those trying or wanting to grow their family is yes, they get to have this awakening and really explore why they have this and end up having an, their love affair with themselves where they find that agency for themselves Yes. And they want the child because they really want to nurture and love something, right? And they have other reasons that it will bring to them. But I get what you're saying. It's not like I need them to have that meaning. And the only time it seems like it could be unhealthy is if they need the child for meaning to give them love. That does That's too much pressure on a child. Right. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's just what I'm saying. The The point is that the mother has to be free. The father has to be free. And they have to raise kids who are free, as opposed to a lot of, there are a lot of strange and twisted motivations for having children. Right. Very true. And we can look at our planet, our world, and maybe it's in the, it's what it looks like today because of that. Well, the, the, you know, I mean, we were just animals without minds. And as the frontal cortex grew and we we grew the human mind, we came out of a fog, just the way a newborn infant over the first three months of life, which is really the fourth trimester, their eyes start to focus, their ears start to focus. They start to have a sense by the third month, the fontanelles begin to close. And as the fontanelles begin to close, exactly at the third month with the sensory orifices beginning to focus, they start to have a sense of other. And The Upanishads tell us, if there is no other, why should I have fear? That fear, anxiety, neurosis actually arise with the sense of other. 
And that sense of other is the beginning of the sense of separation. For the ancient Chinese, at the child's birth, the father isn't present, and the child is kept with the mother, and the child is given the family name, like Li. And at the third month of life, now you have some confidence the child's going to survive because the infant mortality was so high. At the third month of life, you present the child to the father for the first time. And the third month of life is actually the child's first birthday. Nine months in the womb, three months out of the womb is 12 months. That's the cycle on the father's child's first birthday. He meets the father for the first time who makes the child laugh. And with that laughter, the child's heart spirit arises out of the kidney like the sun rising out of the ocean. And with that laugh, the father confers personal name, not just Lee, but Bruce Lee. And the Tao Te Ching tells us it's naming things that create separation. And in the Taoist canon, it's the gaining of name that is described as clouds dotting the clear blue sky and the early formation of the ego, which is the sense of separateness that will become really explicit at the age of two with two-year-old temper tantrums as the child's ego is pushing for omnipotence in every direction. And at the age of two, the child starts gaining language. And at the moment of gaining language is when the human mind starts to condense and solidify, and that's when culture starts teaching it and saying, good Jews do this, good boys do this, good girls do this, good Christians do this, good Muslims do this, good Chinese do this, good do them. That, that's when we start getting the interjection from culture via the mind of all the rules, roles, and all the beliefs that are unexamined by the culture and just perpetuated as a neurotic ritual on us, and those become introjected and come into us, and most people go through life, and the outcome of their life is determined by stuff they were taught consciously and unconsciously by the time they were six. And so is our role to unlearn and heal? Is that is that what this earthly curriculum is about? Because you had well, shared that we had this separation that happens where we start to feel separate. And it sounds like that's where fear, anxiety, shame, guilt, to me, separation doesn't feel very good. So do you have a sense of what this is all about then? Because of what you shared, because you, you're, you're sharing a, an ideology, an idea, and I'm just curious, like, why are we doing this? <laughs> well, this is as far as I've gotten. Okay. And as far as I've gotten is existence can be understood as spirit plating hide and go seek with itself. And it incarnates, there's an explosion, there's energy, there's light, then there's energy, then there's matter. It takes 14, 15 billion years. And then you get a form of matter that can awaken to its motive for having created the universe. We build the Hubble telescope and what's looking through it is the same thing being seen on the other side of it. What's looking is what's being seen. I don't, I'm missing that. So what do you mean by that? Well, consciousness is looking through the telescope. Okay. And consciousness is what created the universe. And consciousness is what is looking back toward its own birth. The further the telescope, the further we see out in the universe, the closer we get to the Big Bang, back to the moment we decided to become. So we get hidden in these forms. You Development goes in stages. And I remember when my daughter would be three or four and say, Dad, let's play hide and go seek. And she'd crawl under the table in front of me and say, go. Right. <laughs> and I'd look, I'd say, Angelica, she'd say, don't find me yet. And so I'd open the silverware drawer and go, is she in the silverware drawer? Is she in the cupboard? Is she under the placemat? And she would be, after three or four things, she'd be losing it, laughing, under the table right in front of me. And then she'd go, you can find me now. And I'd go, there she is. And she'd run and hug me laughing. And I remember the day she said, let's play hide and go seek. And I said, sure. And she said, turn around. Mm -hmm. There was a change that took place. Right. So... Consciousness involves itself in matter, in, in dead matter, in a universe, motivates it over the course of 14 billion years of evolution, 
until a form of matter arises and consciousness awakens to itself and recognizes, oh, I did this. And, so, and I think it does it over and over and over and over and over again. And so with my intention to help bring an exhale or some peace to the listeners, I want to again see if there's a chance to tie this into the, the journey of wanting to grow your family. And basically by having a different perspective, right? Because if you're on the very material level, I think it's very dense and linear and you suffer, like mm -hmm. suffer a lot. And I'm wondering with a different perspective that you can, you'll see it differently and therefore you'll experience it differently. Well, I think it comes down to what you said before and what I've alluded to is just having a family is just, if we're working toward that, it's, look, the ego is always putting off wholeness. I remember thinking to myself, I'll be okay when I get this model car. And then I built the model car and then the wheel broke and it went in the bin with the rest of them. And I thought, I'll be good when I get a Stingray bicycle. I'll be good when I get a girlfriend. I'll be good when she sleeps with me. I'll be good when I get rid of this girlfriend. I'll be good when I get into college. I'll be good when I get out of college. And on and on it goes. And these are all substitute gratifications for wholeness. And I will always come back to over and over again the realization that the life force itself is sheerly positive, to have an existence and to have the intelligence to understand the kind of conversation we're having is a blessed incarnation, mm -hmm. and that everyone has Buddha nature, and that Buddha nature is light, love, and compassion. And that's who and what we are right now without anything else, without anything else. Having And that is, in fact, the practice of meditation, which is when we sit still, close our eyes, and let go of everything, let go of everything, everything, every thought that arises, every attachment, and we surrender it all, really in an act of dying to the contents of our mind, to the contents of our memory as we know it, what emerges is, is just a profound sense of being in the right place at the right time for the right reasons with an ever-present fullness that's always the same but ever new and is in and of itself pregnant with meaning. And that is what I would want for everyone. And when it comes to the fertility project, it's going to work out for most people who engage with it. At least my my. My experience is I've had three people in my career, as I said, who didn't get pregnant, and two of them were around 44, 45, almost everybody under 40, and at least in, in their late, early to mid-30s, they all got pregnant. I can only think of one really offhand who didn't. It's going to work out for most people, and if it doesn't, then they can't blame themselves, and they really need to awaken to the dignity and the beauty of their incarnation without having gotten something they wanted. Because nobody gets everything they want. Yeah, nobody gets everything they want. And this journey is an opportunity for them to feel whole and complete again. And you're not saying, I'm definitely not saying, that doesn't mean it's easy. It's, it's not no. easy. And while it's you're- It's the hardest thing. Yeah. It's, it's not that it's not easy. It's it's the hardest thing in the world to take on these structures. I mean, wanting to bear children is one of the deepest evolutionarily, biologically conditioned structures. It's really profound. The spiritual path is a path of getting to the very root of all attachment. I mean, in terms of Buddhism, you can sum the whole thing up is life is attachment to that. Uh, so, that if you incarnate, you're going to experience suffering. Suffering is caused by attachment to that which is impermanent. This teaching is to help you let go of attachment to that which is impermanent. And That's, it yeah. isn't easy. And the, the movement is from the gross to the subtle for over maybe hundreds of thousands of incarnations. I mean, you know, and to witness this, and again, the women on this journey. Um, we see women and men, but predominantly the women on this journey, you're really witnessing this journey in, in a short period of time because every cycle they get feedback, I'm not pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. Or an unsuccessful IVF, or they'll have miscarriages or stillborns. Like 
what they go through to witness this and and some of them some of them it brings them to that ability to not attach to form an outcome they they become more whole and complete they, they are disappointed that they're not pregnant yet mm-hmm. but many of them come to a place where they still want the baby and yet they know they're going to be okay if they don't have the baby yes and interesting these women are the ones where i've seen what we'd call miracles where then it happens when they don't need it to happen. I had a woman come to me for lower back pain about 25 years ago who had been in a, she had been severely beaten in a mugging and she came for lower back pain and I gave her one acupuncture treatment and she had to miss a week and she came back two weeks later smiling. I said, how are you? She was in ecstasy. She said, I'm pregnant. And I said, that's great. And she said, you don't understand. I she hadn't told me this on intake. She said, my organs were so damaged, you know, 14, 15 years ago, doctors had said it's physically impossible to get pregnant. And I haven't used birth control my entire life since then across multiple lovers and never got pregnant. And I gave her one treatment and she got pregnant. So you just, you never know. You move a little chi, you move a little chi and, and things start communicating and something is touched and boom. And, and, you know, something is touched. I will, I want to add to this because it's not the one treatment. It's not for me, it's not my treatment. I feel like I'm the facilitator. It's them, how they take that information and what they body and soul do with it. And so this is where there's more to what's happening than meets the eye on this material level. That's my experience when I yes. see these miracles. And compliance is very important with diet and lifestyle and, and the herbs. And also I, I'm just adamant that women take three to six months before they try in in many cases, because when they do have miscarriages, it's heartbreaking and creates cynicism and creates doubt and takes an energetic toll. So I really want people to avoid jumping the gun. I really want to give have them give me time to do the work. Now, most women who are younger don't have a problem with that. And it's more the older women who think every day I'm not pregnant is a day I'll never get back, who may not listen to my advice and may not wait. But really, I find it critical at least to give three months taking herbs and eating in a certain way. And of course, no no alcohol, no cigarettes, no coffee, um, no marijuana, no, no nothing. No fun. (laughs) they can have sex yeah we get rid of the stimulants i understand what you're sharing and you know that that waiting in my early days i i subscribed to that and now we treat while they while they're trying mainly because they used to say okay i'm not trying and then they show up pregnant so they we they were lying because they were still trying and also they're getting the the fertility clinics are not wanting them to wait because of age when you talk about the maternal yeah. age of women and and so it's difficult to wait and so it um, depends it, it depends on the individual right cuz i I've, I've had 27 year olds who were infertile and 32 year olds mm-hmm. and the imperative you're talking about as as you know as i suggested is is when they're up around 40 and yeah then we work at the same time mm-hmm. Lonnie, I, I've enjoyed our conversation. As I said, I, I saw your book in the early days, Nourishing Destiny, and seeing you speak in the in my early days of practice. And uh, I wasn't ready for the spiritual side. I was just wanted to know how to fix the material. And uh, and here I am since 2000, so many years later, over 20 years later, and uh, and this is the crux of my practice. Um, I do the herbs and the diet and the acupuncture, mm-hmm. and then. The consult those really on the conscious level and helping help facilitate them finding that way of feeling whole and complete again, and then and then seeing how the things unfold and and sometimes what appear to be miracles unfold. It's quite quite it's quite something to witness, and it's just nice regardless of outcome. They feel good, and as an example, I'm going to take one outside of fertility because um, mm-hmm. we have the fertility one we shared right where when they no longer need the child, sometimes mm-hmm. that's when it appears, but. I've seen people where they, they have terrible pain and um, and they're suffering and it creates incredible anxiety. And I have worked with people where they still get pain, but they don't have anxiety around it. They don't suffer. They're, the the yeah. pain actually helps them. It's part of their meditative practice to find their presence. And, and, and sometimes the pain does just 
they don't feel it, but it's a different experience. Before the pain, they couldn't function, work, life, like it just overtook them. And right. and again, what has changed? Because there's pain, but it's their relationship to the pain has changed. Yes. And, and the thing that changes the relationship to pain or to any experience is the context in which we're interpreting the experience. And the more inclusive our context is, the less it's about us. The wider embrace we have of others and other as self, the less all our experience is personal. It's really this illusion of the purely personal and having our awareness confined to the purely personal that creates the separation that is pain. And the larger our context, the more easily it is to not take things personally. And that context, I understand in terms of the Mahayana Buddhism Bodhisattva vow, which proclaims in its opening sentences, may I be the doctor and the medicine. And the context of the vow is that we didn't have to come back. And we decided as healers to come back for the sake of carrying others, carrying the wounded and suffering to the distant shore. And we agreed to come back, no matter what we might experience in this life, for the privilege of being the vehicle, for being the boat, the bridge, to help others achieve um, freedom and to wake up. So in my, when I have experience, when I have difficult experience, it's always contextualized by my responsibility to others. And I think that's what's liberating. That's what's freeing. For you being, being of service to others. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I can't decompensate. I can't become cynical. Too many, I, I'm responsible to everything and everyone else. My suffering isn't the main event. And this ties into your belief of uh, that everything is connected anyhow. So you're serving yourself and you serve belief. others. It's not a belief. I mean, it's pretty substantiated by quantum mechanics. Okay. So, and this is the part where I'll add. With, I mean, it's like we could call gravity a belief. But. Right. So, and this is the beauty and why I like, why we're doing this Conscious Fertility podcast is it seems like more and more people are waking up to what ancient culture sages have talked about. And now we're using modern day science to validate what was dismissed for the last couple hundred years, for sure. And I, I think people are, in this modern day, are struggling, not just our audience, our listeners on fertility, but in many, many areas of life. And the, the pills haven't helped or helped enough. We know this because people are going to other people that don't prescribe pills to help with, with the struggle. Mm -hmm. And so it's forcing us, and, and I'll use that word loosely, but it's forcing us to find other ways and it's forcing us to come back to a spiritual aspect of our healing Yes. To, to get that relief that we're looking for. Yeah, and ultimately I think it's it's more than about getting relief. The the path and the inclination, the spiritual path begins with a selfish motive, but it always ends with a selfless motive. Oh, got to say that again cuz that that is beautiful. Well, the spiritual path begins with a selfish motive. Mm -hmm. I want to be free cuz I don't want to suffer. Mm -hmm. But it always concludes and it matures with a selfless motive, which is my life is for everything and everyone. And that's the beautiful part of this, again, where your initial intentions of doing this kind of work is fine. And when we started the Conscious Fertility podcast, I had this idea, conscious fertility to conscious conception to conscious pregnancy to conscious parenting. Mm -hmm. So your selfish motive was, okay, this may help me get pregnant, so I'm going to come and learn about consciousness and do the conscious work. In the process, they have their internal transformation. And now, like you shared, it becomes selfless versus selfish. Yes. And I, I just want to make the point, just because it arose in my awareness while you were speaking, that the entire Taoist spiritual literature, in terms of awakening and becoming conscious and becoming enlightened, is cast in embryological terms of conceiving a self, gestating a self, um, giving birth to a new self, and raising it. So there is a book on EJ e. printed by E.J. Brill called Transforming the Void, which is the translation of 500 pages of Taoist writing on the spiritual path 
in the language of fertility and conception. So they're one and the same. And all, all the points, most of the points that we would use to tonify kidney young and to clear stagnations and to treat for fertility are actually points that have alchemical uses in terms of conceiving and cultivating what the Chinese would call a spiritual embryo and just awakening. So there you have it. There are other ways to help optimize your fertility. Um, most of you are very familiar with IVF and now acupuncture, low-level laser therapy diet, which Lonnie said, don't dismiss that. You are physical as, as well as spiritual. And he has invited us to explore more the subtle, non-physical, the spiritual of other ways to optimize your fertility. And um, sounds like you may get more than a baby out of this, you may um, have a rebirth of your own, which you'll be, it sounds like it's all light and love. So it sounds like you'll, you'll be welcomed. Well, I think, I think love is the heat that incubates the fetus. Love is the heat that yeah. incubates the fetus. I think we'll end on that, on that statement. <laughs> all right. Okay. Thank you very much, Lonnie Jarrett. You can find more about Lonnie Jarrett's teachings on his website at LonnieJarrett.com. We'll put in the show notes as well, where you can find his textbooks and his website as well. Lonnie, thank you very much for joining us on the Conscious Fertility Podcast. Thank you, Lauren. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for the invitation. And I just wish everyone their heart's desire. Thank you. Blessings. If you're looking for support to grow your family, contact AccuBalance Wellness Center. At AccuBalance, they help you reach your peak fertility potential through their integrative approach, using low-level laser therapy, fertility acupuncture, and naturopathic medicine. Download the AccuBalance Fertility Diet and Dr. Brown's video for mastering manifestation and clearing subconscious blocks. Go to AccuBalance.ca that's acubalance.ca. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Conscious Fertility, the show that helps you receive life on purpose. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show and join the community of women and men on their path to peak fertility and choosing to live consciously on purpose. I would love to continue this conversation with you, so please direct message me on Instagram at Lauren Brown Official. That's Instagram, Lauren Brown Official. Or you can visit my websites, laurenbrown.com and acubalance.ca. Until the next episode, stay curious, and for a few moments, bring your awareness to your heart center and breathe.